Oh my goodness. This one was a banger. We have Tiago Forte. Tiago is the OG of the second brain. I don't say that lightly. This is a man who is the pioneer of personal knowledge management. He's broken down the process of thought and learning and memory and all of the modern tools that are used to achieve that. He has synthesized it into a system that is groundbreaking. It was a breath of fresh air to discover Tiago in med school when I remember sitting in lectures and you would just see this ocean of laptops and everyone is making individual documents on Microsoft Word and I just wanted to be sick constantly. So it was great to see that there are people who take this second brain stuff seriously. And the reason that I want to talk to Tiago and share this interview with you is that this is an area that online coaches and trainers are so deficient in their systems. They often don't have a second brain at all. And yet they forget that one of the core functions of being an online coach is taking your knowledge and synthesizing it and packaging it in a way that is digestible for your clients to help them achieve a result. So you can't skip this. You can't take shortcuts with building a second brain. And if you think you don't have a system for it, you still have a system. You just have a shit one. So we have a lot to learn from Tiago. Let's go. Tiago, thank you for coming on. Yeah, Yusuf, thanks for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. I'm, I'm actually glad that we rescheduled as well because I, I had uh, myalgia, fever, and headaches uh, suspiciously uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. So no idea what that could have been. But So I'm not going to waste your time with asking you about basic general stuff that you cover because you've got loads of content on building a second brain and general productivity. Um, but the two things that I'd like to point people towards are the productivity pyramid and the 10 requirements of a second brain app. These are two things that just give you a framework for how to place everything that we're going to talk about today. Can you describe what it is that you do and what you teach at the moment? Absolutely. Yeah. So building a second brain is the name of the methodology, but also a five-week live online course known as a cohort-based course because we teach it live to a group of people. It's also the name of a book, the Building a Second Brain book that is coming out very soon here. Um, so it's a kind of slowly expanding media brand that we're building out, you know, one product at a time. Uh, and what it is about is a field that many people have not heard of, but has actually been around for a few decades now, which is called PKM, which stands for personal knowledge management. So how do individual human beings, that's the personal, record what they know? write it down, document it in a trusted, reliable place outside of their heads, that's the knowledge, and then do things with it, utilize it, apply it, implement it, use it to improve their health or their thinking or their productivity or their business or to serve clients, that's the management. Um, so I'm really just trying to get this kind of stuffy academic field, you know, that's been a bunch of academics at conferences and break it down to the absolute simplest building blocks and teach it through all these different media 
to normal people, people like you and me who are just trying, you know, we're not trying to get a PhD. We're just trying to solve problems, save time, you know, complete our tasks, succeed in our careers and our businesses. That's really my my entire mission. So this is the the track, and you've you've led me very nicely onto this. We didn't even plan this <laughs> onto what the the core challenge that the coaches face is. It's very easy for particularly because I've been there myself for for trainers and coaches to get so excited about the protein synthesis pathways and leucine metabolism and all this stuff. And they think that their clients are going to be just as interested in it. And you've said there that the the goal of your audience is to build a system. It's not to get a PhD in building a system. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, you have started off as very much a content creator and a writer. And I've seen over the last few years, you've kind of shifted role essentially from being content creator to to coach. Can you talk to us about the journey that you've taken from making content, putting ideas out there, and that kind of turning into something which is now what it is today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started off, like you said, just publishing, you know, blog posts, articles on Medium. Uh, I'm not technically oriented, so I needed, you know, just a very easy blogging platform. This was back in 2014, 2015, when Medium was you know, preeminent. And I probably wrote a couple dozen articles until I had my first hit. My first kind of, not truly viral, but like for me, a little bit viral article had, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand views. And I I still remember what it felt like. It felt great. I mean, it felt this like this rush of, you know, validation and recognition. But then that rush lasted about 15 seconds because I just thought, wait a minute, I didn't make any money. So I will have no easier time paying my rent this month. That was my, my big struggle at the time was just paying rent in San Francisco. (laughs) Um, and then I thought also, I don't know if this had any impact, right? Like there's some nice comments on social media, but I'm writing how to, I'm writing content that isn't supposed to just entertain. It's supposed to change how people eat or how they have routines or how they, you know, manage their reading or how they, um, you know, create products and services. So I want to know that it's actually being applied. It's being implemented. And I had no evidence of that. Um, and really I just thought, I don't want to just create these pieces of content that kind of just dissipate out into the ether. I want to train people. I want to follow their journey from this initial contact all the way down the line to the difficulties and the challenges and all the problems they're going to face and actually applying what I'm telling them. And I think that's where where my journey intersects with the, the journeys of your listeners. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And there's there's definitely a sense where if you're writing blog posts or you know more recently writing tweets, which are effectively micro blogs, as you're putting content out there you will get the sense of oh i've tapped a live wire there like that got a that got a bigger response than expected and then it kind of shows you what to double down on and one of the one of the big kind of initial challenges of any content creator is being afraid that it'll be crap and so they they sit and have just accumulate article drafts on their hard drive or video drafts or whatever and never post anything whereas actually the learning is done in public and and then as you said, when once you start to see certain topics that really resonate with an audience, then it's like, oh, okay, this is where I can start to to repackage 
things into something that's more of a, a system and help people more deeply. Uh, the other thing you mentioned there is that the way that you write and iterate based on people's feedback, that that helps you to clarify your ideas in itself, like just that that process. And it's not just a one way throwing something into a black hole. Have you ever struggled with the fear of posting something or was it just a case that you were writing and didn't expect the audience that has come about off the back of it? A little bit of both. There's definitely fear. I mean, you'd be, it would be pathological to not have some fear. You know, you're putting your, your reputation and your ego and your, you know, your self-respect on the line every time you hit publish. Um, that's kind of declined over time. Uh, just from repetitions, you know, once you've done something enough times, you know, the sky is not going to fall. Someone will call you a name on Twitter, which is just the usual, <laughs> the usual thing, but you know, they don't know you or anything about you really. So you just kind of get used to it. Um, but then at the same time, I can't say I set out to build this. It's been just surprises all along the way. And you have to be open to this, I think, as a as a content creator, as an online personality, as a as a business owner in general, you don't know the path it's going to take you on. That's the whole point. If you knew the path, then everyone would take it because it would just be a checklist. And then that business would be terrible because there'd be so many competitors that there would be no profit to be had. So profit corresponds to the ambiguity and the uncertainty and the challenge of the path that you're taking. This is another common uh, pitfall that we see a lot of people do is that they see the the trends and the algorithms pushing certain types of content or certain ideas and they just kind of jump on the bandwagon and all of their content becomes copycat content. Whereas it's very clear that from your perspective, you had a system and you thought about something more deeply than I'd ever, <laughs> ever seen anyone else think about. And you were almost writing to kind of correct a deficiency in the information online and that comes from a very different place how would you advise someone who is chasing the the instagram hamster wheel trying to do all the all the different kind of trending stuff and and just rehashing the the same information that they see other other coaches and trainers posting online yeah i think it's a little of both you ha you have to, uh, to a certain extent create what the market wants Right? It's really funny. You'll listen to all these interviews and half the people are saying, no, you need to construct your tweets in a certain way and have Instagram posts and YouTube videos a certain way to catch the algorithm and all these things. And then the other half of experts are saying, no, 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 just ignore all that. Just do what your heart says. Follow your passions and success will come. I mean, obviously it's some of both, right? Those, those two points are the two ends of an extreme spectrum and it's a balance of the two, right? Like I, I really road Twitter. Twitter has been my my kind of social media platform of choice almost the entire time. And that worked for me because it fit my my skills and my personality and my temperament. I like these little clever, they're almost like jokes, these little one-liners where you're just trying to like get a reaction. It's a little provocation or it's a little insight or it's a little fortune cookie, you know, kind of sentence. But I, I would say you have to to match it to your personality. Like my wife, for example, she tried Twitter. She tried writing these big blog posts. She kept trying to do what I do. 
And she was like, oh, it's not working. She, she has this business around helping people get into grad school and get scholarships and fellowships. And then she discovered YouTube and she's done incredibly well on YouTube because she has a much more vivacious personality than I do. She can just get on video and talk. She doesn't even need a script and it does fantastically well. And that is what matches who she is. Um, and so I would say it's a little bit of both and you kind of sort of, it's like a pendulum. There will be periods where you're optimizing, where you're like tweaking the tweets and the Instagram posts and the Facebook posts and all these different things. And then there's other periods where you really, like you said, there were periods where I was just going down rabbit holes, following obsessions. When you have an obsession, run after that thing with everything you have, because that's not going to last very long. And so I'd write these long, you know, 10, 20, 30 part series on my blog, tens of thousands of words, which by the way, goes against every single piece of blogging advice you will ever hear. Everyone says, oh, you need a, a catchy, you know, headline and then keep it very short and have it full of images and, and other graphics. I had no images, no graphics, was writing entire books about very <laughs> obscure, complex topics. So just goes to show that sometimes you can do the exact opposite of the advice that everyone says and be very successful. Yeah, you had a you had a North Star and it wasn't about playing any kind of game. It was just like, I've got a gift that I need to get out into the world. And I, I very much agree with you need to pick the platform that matches your temperament. Otherwise, you're kind of fighting uphill. Um, and then there's also the the thing about if you're if you're looking at people who are gaining mad reach by doing dances and like pointing at words on on TikTok, and that's that's not your character you're kind of trapping yourself because you then end up with even best case scenario, let's say it goes well and you gain 5,000 followers, then what? You've got 5,000 followers that are going to be disengaged because that's not who you are or you're going to be exhausted every time you try and make content. So the process that you've implied there is that there was a core idea and a core desire to help people get them get them results or whatever you hadn't really thought about the kind of whether it's at scale or one-to-one -one at that point but it there was a core central idea and it was blinkers on i'm gonna just get this idea out on paper and then get the feedback then iterate and then look at the distribution and i see now you've you have really upgraded your production quality you've got a very pro looking background there um all that stuff is now about kind of how do i now package that core idea into something that's more manageable for people if they don't want to read a twenty thousand word blog post exactly yeah writing is great for developing new ideas it's the best medium because it's so easy to produce you don't need cameras you don't need audio you don't need graphics you know, you don't need any skill except thinking and writing, which almost everyone can do. And you can also iterate so fast. You can write something, you can write every morning, right? And five minutes after you're done writing, you can have it online for people to read. So the iteration speed is really fast and also the precision, right? Like on a video or a slide, you can kind of just like talk vaguely about things and people go, oh yeah. And then five, five minutes later, they're like, wait, did that make any sense? <laughs> Whereas writing forces you to really make your point specifically, which then means the feedback from others is more actionable and more specific. So I, I really recommend writing as your first medium to really develop the ideas. But then like you said, once it starts catching on or of the 10 things you read about, one of them usually is way more successful than all the rest, then you wanna start translating to other mediums, make it into videos, make it into graphics, start a, start a social media account, make it into a class. And all that extra effort is justified 
because you have the validation very early on that that writing, like if the writing doesn't do well, nothing else is going to do well. But if the writing did well, the writing version, then at least you know there is some sort of demand for that kind of content. So true that writing clarifies your thinking and calls you out on your cognitive bullshit because we all know someone who is maybe an amazingly electrifying speaker and you, you know you get all pumped when you listen to them and then you hear them at the end and you think at the end and like actually they they didn't really say anything there but they managed to deliver it in such a way that whereas writing doesn't allow any wiggle room for that so it's a great way to to clarify your ideas for sure um so on that note i guess i've seen you split things into kind of internal writing for yourself and then um s- making that writing and the concepts more and more concrete until you're able to present that to a to a public audience and i think that whole process is the thing which which coaches are pretty weak at and it goes from i guess information management all the way to publishing content how do you think coaches can start to dip their toe into building a second brain for creating content maintaining client relationships and generally just preserving their sanity yeah, so this is this is actually something that I've been thinking about for a long time. So I want to talk a little bit about the psychology, what I think is the psychology of coaches and trainers around this subject. And then I'd be very curious to hear if you also see this. So first of all, the reason that I care about this a lot is when I think back through my life, there were these people who I worked with that made such a huge difference for me such a huge difference for me from sports coaches in school to personal trainers to yoga instructors to a crossfit coach that i had for a time uh and even broadening that category i don't know if there's a name for this category but like even like you know massage therapists acupuncturists reiki i did reiki one time you know there's this whole category that includes coaches and trainers but is broader that are like people who have rare tacit knowledge, but that usually need to be with you in person in order to deliver that knowledge, right? They have to touch you. They have to look you in the eye. They have to see your body language. They have to have an interaction, a a coaching, you know, conversation. And so I'm really passionate about bringing the leverage of these digital tools to these people just to, as a, out of gratitude. But here's what I notice is these practitioners, we'll just call them practitioners, um, they usually work on an hourly basis, right? They have a lesson or a session or a appointment or whatever it's called. And they usually <clears throat> are charging a certain amount for that hour. And their whole goal is to get that hourly rate as high as possible, right? They're very fixated on that hourly rate. They want to make 100 and then 150 and then 200 and then 250. It's like a, it's like a reputation thing. It's a self-respect thing. It's like they're, they're really attached to this number. But then when I talk to these practitioners often and you look at, I, I look, look at kind of the holistic picture of their finances, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. It's pretty yeah. bad. A lot of coaches and trainers and practitioners are in really precarious financial situations that I talk to. Uh, even ones that charge really high per hour. And the reason, I think as we know, any of us who have billed hourly is it's hard to fill your schedule, right? Like if you have one client in a day or two, that's not enough. You got to fill your time. You got to maximize your billable hours. And that's so hard to do as a solopreneur, 
right? Like when you don't have a whole marketing, like a doctor can do this because they have a whole appointment desk and they have a waiting room. They have the supply of people always ready to come in, but most of us can't afford that. And so I'm, I'm just fascinated by this problem of people who are almost stuck, addicted to this super high hourly rate, but that cannot build a good living, a sustainable living that allows them to have more free time and step away because it's so hard to fill, fill the roster. Yeah. And, and you, you frame this as a financial problem, but this is really a information management problem. And, and I, the, the reason that I'm saying that, I'm sure you agree, is that, as you say, if you're charging hourly, even if it's a really premium service, even if you're a doctor in the States, for example, we, we don't have that luxury in the UK. We, we, yes, there's, there's always enough work, but um, we just get paid a, a crap salary regardless. Um, but uh, you just you have to just pedal harder to to earn any more there's no leverage in that and that this certainly goes for practitioners that i think do well in spite of the, the financial model that they're running and i think there's an element of moralistic ego that some people have with this as well that like oh no i i, I have to work with someone one-on-one i'm hands-on only I, I couldn't i couldn't bear to just give someone a cookie cutter template but it's it's not it's not one or the other and there there are very much uh, blocks of information that every therapist, every um, yoga teacher, every coach has to just translate that block of information to a client. It's the kind of the beginner's foundations stuff, regardless of yeah. who they are. That's and, the thing. That's the thing yeah. right there. Is like here's a little a little quiz for your listeners. You know, how much of your time? Think about the whole the whole skill that you're trying to teach, whether it's ballroom dancing or whether it's, you know, jump roping or like whatever the skill is for your clients, how much of the time are you spending teaching the bottom 70% from absolute beginner up to a level of 70%? How much of your time are you spending teaching again and again and again, probably in exactly the same way, that bottom 70%? I'd say it's probably most of people's time, right? It's so problematic because you're not delivering the highest value to them. You can't, you can't charge more, right? Because you're just covering the basics. You're getting bored. You'll inevitably get bored of that. They'll get bored. So you can't, you have to keep adding to the value you're providing to clients. And you can't do that if you're just reteaching the basics again and again and again. I would actually argue that it's worse to teach it ad hoc each time because and we, yeah. we've done this in terms of, you know, it's the, it's the core the, the core model of um, what we advise people in terms of delivery of their coaching is to to build up a gold standard explainer series that they give to all clients to get them up to speed. Because yes. if you're doing it individually or you're opening up a blank document and writing their plan each time a new client signs up, that document is totally at the mercy of what you can remember at the time or yes. how tired you are on a given day or whatever. So you're not delivering a standardized service. Exactly. No, that's that's yet another reason to do it. You know, and, and it's difficult because you, you, you're going to need to cannibalize a little bit. Like, yes, w- one of your clients may buy your $49 course or whatever, or your free blog post instead of paying you 150 bucks to have a one-hour beginner session, right? And that's scary. I know how scary that is. It's like, am I just giving away this precious knowledge that's taken me 20 years to acquire? But if you don't cannibalize yourself, 
right? Like you want to be the one to cannibalize yourself, not have someone else do it to you. (laughs) Yeah, someone's just going to Google it if they can't find it from you. So you may as well treat it as your lead magnet. And then what someone's going to see that and be like, whoa, okay, if that's just the introductory stuff, like imagine how far I could go working with this person. Um, I started working with a psychotherapist recently and I was really impressed that in the second or third session, she just sent me a PDF that was 30 pages long and it explained the core model of what we'd be working through. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Like I, I didn't, some people might feel fobbed off by that, but I would rather receive a gold standard quality bit of information that gives me a framework to that so that because there's no point in her as you say just rehashing the same stuff manually and then it means you can get straight into the meat of stuff rather than going through the basics exactly This, this is what i kept noticing with my productivity coaching right i would i was in san francisco and i thought oh, i'm gonna do this super high hourly rate but i would show up you know at someone's office sit down with them first hour and they'd be like okay what do i do <laughs> and I'm just like, well, I mean, it was just starting at such a low level that we'd spend the whole first hour just kind of like put like puttering around and just like, oh, what productivity app do you use? Well, here's one you could use. Like it was so low value. And I started to see this with my very first course, which was a, a very affordable, I think it was like $30 self-paced course, is the person who had done that course first even just part of that course, they became my ideal client because now they have much more specific questions. Now they know how much they're lacking. Now they have, they have follow-up, you know, things they want to cover from the course. All the basics have been covered. And so it's almost like we're starting at hour five instead of starting at hour one, which means I'm more engaged and interested, which means they're committed. You know how, you know, like how nice it is to have a committed client. Right? Oh, How much better of an experience yeah. is that for you? It's, it's like, oh, yes, someone who cares. <laughs> the best way to make sure they're committed is to ask something of them on the front end. Right? Like almost think of it like an onboarding. Someone reaches out to you, they want to work with you. Instead of immediately saying yes, just be like, absolutely. I just have a short orientation, an onboarding, an initial module for you to go through, which can be 15 minutes. 20 minutes, 30 minutes. If they drop off the face of the planet when you ask that of them, you probably don't want them as a client anyway because they're going to ghost you. You'd rather have them ghost you for the self-paced course or the the free content than to be at the gym waiting for them and to have them not show up, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's a perfect filter for someone that you want to work with. So if someone's listening to this and being like, right, I'm fully sold on the idea of building an onboarding sequence or a, a welcome pack, how would you recommend someone goes about doing that if they have no second brain system to speak of? Yeah, great, great question. So how does this start? How do you know what to create as your first thing? What you're really trying to do is identify, start with just like the top, like the the first 10 or 20% of what you always have to cover, right? And think even more basic than you think right? Like if you're a tennis instructor, how to put on tennis shoes. If you're a ballroom dance instructor, you know, uh, how to, I don't know, like what kinds of clothes to buy. Like it could even be a step before they even arrive to do the thing that they're going to do, right? Like you want to go kiteboarding. 
how to check the, the, I just went, did my first kiteboarding lesson yesterday, how to check the wind forecast to know whether you should even go to the beach. You know, like every single activity has these sort of pl- preliminary steps that to you, like this is what makes it hard for, to you, they are so automatic and so natural, you don't even realize you're doing them. They're like, they're like unconscious. And this is where notes come in. Okay, this is the, the very starting point is notes. You have to just really observe yourself. What are the what are the first thoughts that enter your head as you start to begin doing that activity? Write those down in your phone. Use Apple Notes. Use the Android, you know, default notes app. Write there, write them down. Um, record an audio memo. You know, as you're getting ready to do whatever it is, just put into your phone, like what, like narrate to yourself. Okay, I'm about to go kiteboarding. Here's the checklist of things that I think about before I even head out to the beach. I think of one, two, three, four, five. Record an audio memo. An audio memo. You can use a tool like Otter AI, O T T E R dot AI, which transcribes what you've just said into text, which can then be searched. You have to just capture. That's my word. So the term I use is capture those initial little things. And once you capture them, then you start to add layers. You start to add a little instructional video. You start to add sub steps. You start to add a, a demonstration. You start to add photos. And you won't believe how basic that starting seed can be. Like the five steps to begin doing X, that can be a whole blog series or a whole video or a whole course that people will pay for. You will be amazed how basic of a thing people will find valuable when they're just getting started with something. Yeah, that is a great way to start because as you say, what is obvious to you is often mind-blowing to your audience and there's often been stuff that I've thought, oh, it's not even worth recording a video about that. It's not even worth making content about that because it's so obvious. But actually, it's so commonly requested that you're like, oh, okay, let's see how I can package this. And often because it's so obvious to you, you have so many blind spots to what part of that is teachable. And so a couple of things to add, I guess, I, I do love otter.ai, great tool for anyone um, who hasn't used it. But I guess if you can if you're able to record a session with a client, if you have a new client and you say, look, do you mind if I just, for my own reference, just record the audio of the session? Some people might find it a bit weird, but if it's to help construct a better system or even just sitting over coffee and having a chat with someone and getting them to grill you on, okay, what's what are the steps? And then in the conversational flow, you come up with stuff that you probably wouldn't with a bit of blank paper. Those are, those are fantastic ideas, Yusuf. Yeah, I mean offer a free lesson in exchange. I'm sure you give your listeners give out free sessions all the time. Okay, the next one you do say, look, I'd love to do a free session with you. Um, can we just record it so that I, I can, you know, share with other beginners what we do in a beginner lesson? I'm sure someone will take you up on that, right? Yeah. Hey, excuse me, I'm just building a second brain. Uh, do you mind having a free session yeah. with me? Yeah. And then, and then the other idea you had is great too. You know, have a friend or a colleague or another trainer who's willing, um, document it for you. They could just as simple as record it with their iPhone or they can interview you. I really like that, right? Like interview you like, okay, well, what do you do first? Okay. What do you do next? Well, why did you do it that way? Well, how about that? Almost like this, like a demo first session. So they, then you're forced to be like, oh, well we do it like that because of these obvious reasons. It's, it's all going to be so obvious to you. You're, you're going to be almost embarrassed to talk about it, but that is the stuff, you know, I just thought of an example, a friend who's a facilitator, she did a a YouTube video about how to write on post-its. 
you know, the little post-it okay. notes, how yeah. to write a post-it. And you're like, what do you mean? That's <laughs> obvious. But she had all these little tricks. She's like, you need this kind of Sharpie. Because if you use a normal pen, the letters are too thin and you won't be able to see it from a distance. But if you use a thick Sharpie, you won't have enough space to write. So it was like a fine point Sharpie, this specific model, right? And then she was like, when you go to to rip off the post-it from the pad, if you do it from the bottom and go up, the paper will be bent. It'll be too bent. And so when you stick it on the wall, it'll be like... Instead of being flat, it will be up like this. So she showed how you have to pull it off from the side so that it doesn't get bent. Like, think about this stuff. Like, who would have even thought? Not as a woman who's written a lot of posts. Right? Like, how many post-its has she written to discover some of these things? But I found it so helpful, and I use those tips to this day. Like, you, you can't underestimate how basic of support and instruction people need. Yeah. And, you know, even from a bit of a weird example, but from a medical legal perspective in hospital, you will often have to deliver a piece of information to a patient or an instruction or a a care plan or something. And every time without fail, you'll get a patient sort of nodding at you and going, oh yeah, okay, cool. You're supposed to ask, can you just repeat back to me just to make sure that I've not missed anything. And there's always a disconnect in the information that is fed back and it's usually because there's stuff that to a physician is pretty obvious but doesn't communicate or even skip those bits so um having that that closing that loop is really important yeah so tiago you used to work for apple is that right well at the apple store which is a a little different than working at headquarters yeah i worked at an apple store in san diego uh, while i was in college so You've had a bit of a similar shift to a lot of people listening then, which is going from a day job where your time and your tasks are very much dictated to you to being fully self-employed where the world's your oyster, but anything that you could do is totally open-ended and you've got to set your priorities. Have you struggled with making that shift? And is there anything, any insights that you've learned from that? Oh yeah, I mean, I, and I had many jobs in between those two, those two extremes. Um, it's I still remember. So my my kind of first professional job was at a consulting firm in San Francisco. This was around two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I I worked there for a couple of years, and then I and then I left to kind of start doing my own thing. And I still remember the feeling of waking up the first morning, not having a job and not having a next job and not planning, you know, at least hoping to not have a next job and just feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm like floating out in space. I am like, it's like I'm in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and I have a, you know, a, a piece of wood that I'm clinging to. I am, I am just unmoored. I am just lost in this vast expanse. And I almost had this feeling like if I drop dead right now, people wouldn't find me for days. Like I am, I am like, <laughs> I would just be here in my apartment for days. It's a really scary feeling. We're, I think we're taught that we always have to be part of some group. We have to be part of an organization, a company, a school, a, a gym, a, a team, whatever it is. And it's terrifying. It's really terrifying to go out on your own. It's a very basal thing as well. If we, if we don't, 
we haven't got a label to put on ourselves. We've lost yes. our identity. You know, the, the, the most anxiety-inducing question for a lot of people at parties is, oh, so what do you do? And it's like, oh, okay, I have to define myself now in the next five seconds. Exactly. You start to wonder, who am I really? What is my, what is my identity? What is my true nature? <laughs> What's interesting is coaches and trainers are some of the that's probably one of the most common type of, of like solopreneur, right? Most, I think most coaches and trainers I talk to are, they may work at a certain gym, but they're kind of like freelancers. They're kind of like, they're kind of contractors, even for the place that they show up to every day, right? Sure. Um, and so they're almost like proto entrepreneurs. You know, I, I see this with, I have a few people in my life that are in this category. You know, you know, my brother's a ballroom, a professional ballroom dance instructor. And it's, you know, he's young, he's in his 20s and he's teaching ballroom dance. And he's got to learn all these skills, mark, mark, how to market himself, how to promote himself, how to deal with clients, how to deal with finances, accounting, which is so dumb. Like, it's hard enough to just do the one thing that you that you teach. And then to also wear all these hats, I think this is where productivity this is probably why your, your audience is interested in productivity. You have to become more productive. You have to gain leverage if you're going to manage all those responsibilities. Yeah, very much. That you you go from, like, you train to teach people to do crunches on a Swiss ball and bicep curls, and then suddenly you're the marketing department, you're the sales department, you're the accounting, you're um, the operations, your delivery, your everything. You're having to quickly figure out ways to do this online at scale and people fall into old habits. And it's it's really one, one of the biggest groups, people that struggle with the transition is if someone's working for a chain gym or a franchise gym. So I guess you've got Planet Fitness and those kind of things over there mm-hmm. where you might be getting steady lead flow and you think it's because of your um, amazing moral upstanding character and and coaching but actually it's because you're standing on the shoulders of the branding of planet fitness and you've got personal mm. trainer written on your back and mm. you you'd be able to benefit from the marketing of the the franchise so then when you go and work freelance that muscle of lead generation and marketing is completely atrophied mm. and so that is yes. the thing which then has to be trained i see this when people leave the franchise and they think they're going to continue to charge the same rate. But this time, instead of the franchise taking whatever it is, 50%, 70%, I'm going to keep it all. And, and you're right. They seriously underestimate how much of their, their lead flow is coming from people walking in the door of that place, doing a search online, asking a friend. It's, it's really challenging to make that transition. But at the same time, it is outrageous how, how much they take, isn't it? Every example that I see, like my brother, you know, teaches lessons that they're charging like, like $90 an hour. And then he gets like 18. It's what, for ballroom dancing. Yeah. Which is kind of a a rare skill. He's making like 10 or 20% at most of what he's charging. And I'm just like, that is highway robbery. That is so unfair. (laughs) Yeah. That is an insane cut. I mean, like anything less than 50% of what <laughs> the top line cost is is yeah but even it's, 50% it's this is outrageous you're the one you're the one there with the skill and the knowledge like i feel like indignant on behalf of all people who have specialized knowledge like now that the internet exists 
I want th- these people, I want your listeners to acquire these skills, productivity, knowledge management, online marketing, because if, if you can just learn these, those three skills at a basic level, you can unlock, you can now go direct to your customers. You don't have to go through intermediaries anymore. You can, you can create a direct customer relationship and not only keep 100% of that rate, but increase it and, and launch all these other revenue streams that we talked about. It's, it's more possible than ever. Yeah, this is the big unsung benefit of working online. Yes, it's a double-edged sword, but you own your own infrastructure. You you have the full pipeline, and then you can do what you need with it. You're not going to get rinsed by middlemen who aren't adding anything of value to the process. Exactly. Anytime you have to go through an intermediary, they in general will take more and more and more. They have all the power. They have all the leverage and they'll use it. If they want to, if they need to increase their revenue this quarter, guess where that revenue is coming from? Right. And money is just one, is just one dimension. There's all these other ways. You know, they'll ask you to do a free lesson. They'll ask you to stay afterwards and clean up a little bit. They'll, you know, like there's all these unpaid things. I remember what it's like working in, you know, retail. There's all this unpaid labor you're expected to do, you know, and gosh, at some point, you gotta just take control. You gotta take control of your funnel, of your your lead, your you know your leads. Otherwise, you're always going to be at the mer- like. I kind of had a similar transition. I started on Skillshare, which was an online learning platform. And at first, it was great. Oh, I just upload these videos, and there's a course, and they do all the marketing for me, right? But then they changed their model one day, and I started making like ninety percent, ninety five percent less from one day to the next. Wow. Okay. And then I was like, oh, so oh, it's just because they're bad. Let me go over to this other platform. So I went to Udemy. Similar thing happened. And then I started to understand, oh, it's not that this or that group or company is evil. It's that if you own a platform, you have all the power. And so that was when I moved to Teachable. And Teachable is very different. And I recommend it for anyone who, any of you thinking of creating a course, they don't take, they're, they're not, do, so first of all, they're not doing any marketing for you. So it's all on your plate. But the the silver lining is they also don't take a commission. You pay them a fixed, very affordable fee every year. They give you all the tools, all the infrastructure, and any sale that you make, you keep all of it minus, you know, credit card processing fees. But it's probably 98%, 99% that you keep. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a sexy prospect in the beginning to go, oh, well, I don't have to pay anything up front. But you're gonna that's, absolutely. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that that leads me on quite well, actually, because you've been burned by the Skillshare type model. Now you own the full supply chain, which I think is a very wise move. Where do you think that online learning is moving in general? Do you think that it's going more towards cohort-based courses? So I'm I'm part of um, of Ali Abdal's at the minute, run quite nice. similarly to cool. to yours. Um, we run a continuous course. We've we've toyed with the idea of cohort based, but do you think that's the way that things are going? I think it's the new trend. <clears throat> um, I have a very in depth blog post on this called "The Future of Education Is Community." That people can look up where I talk about the 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 past basically like ten or fifteen years of history of online education. There's been four or five distinct waves like new trends. And what's interesting is each wave doesn't, it never completely replaces the previous wave. It adds to it, right? 
You know, like think about the MOOCs, massive open online courses. They don't seem trendy anymore. No one really talks about them, but that, that kind of online course is more profitable than ever. It's still around. It's not the hot new thing. It's just has, it's matured. And now we've moved on to like more exciting things like cohort-based courses. So generally, the, all these educational formats kind of stack on top of each other instead of replacing each other. Um, but I do think the current, you know, exciting frontier seems to be what are called cohort-based courses, CBCs, which we can talk about because I think they're a great fit for your audience. Coaches, trainers, tacit knowledge, people with tacit knowledge are really, really well served by this new format of course. It gets both the accountability and the um, the leverage in in one. So it's as long as you have enough lead flow at a certain point to be able to to run people through it. Um, and this is where it depends if your the way that you sell is kind of through a trickle or through building up a waiting list and then dumping a bunch of people into the course in one go. Yeah, we're very email centric, which I also recommend. I wish someone had told me this back at the beginning. You know, I thought, oh, followers are followers. A YouTube subscriber is about the same as a Twitter follower is the same as a Facebook follower is the same as a, you know, subscriber to my email list. No, they're not. No, they're not. A subscriber to your email list. I seriously think you should think of it like they're worth a hundred times, say a Twitter follower. And the reason is there's no, again, it's the same thing. There's no intermediary right? I use ConvertKit, which is a really great email marketing platform. But if ConvertKit does something I don't like, and eventually they will, right? Like what are the odds that me and convert me and this giant company are going to be perfectly aligned forever, practically nil, right? One day they're going to be acquired. They're going to increase their prices too much. They're going to have a policy I don't like or, or whatever, or, or maybe I'll just have different needs over time. The fact that I can in one step download my entire email list and import that list into a different email marketing platform and just keep going is everything. You can't do that with any other kind of platform that's that's out there. Yeah, um, very what good we point. Do, the ConvertKit doesn't own your list. You know, you you own the CSV file of the email addresses. Exactly. You can exactly. shop the, wherever you want. The main asset in my entire business is a CS is a CSV is a spreadsheet a sp- spreadsheet. Excuse me, <laughs> a spreadsheet of people's email addresses. That is the primary asset of my entire business because every time we go to the launch, to launch the course, it's what you said. We send an email out to that list and we launch twice a year, every six months. Every time we launch, we convert maybe 2%, right? Only 2% of the people that have signed up to my email list every six months need to purchase and we have a, an, an amazing business. I mean, that's, that's pretty lean compared to, as you say, with we're, we're seeing a lot of people saying that their Instagram reach has just tanked quite suddenly over the last couple of months. And on the one hand, yes, it's a shame. We, we're we trying to push Instagram, but also you think, well, what, what did you expect? Like they, they don't owe you anything. And if the new thing that they're trying to push to more people is um, trending audio and, and, and dancing and that kind of thing, and if, if that doesn't suit your brand, then you've either got to play the game or pay to play and and every platform will do that i don't think anyone there's no virtuous platform they simply get a critical mass of people who are engaged they reward them with the engagement and then at some point they go up now you've got to pay to play to continue so exactly it's the playbook it happens every single time every single time which i mean i would say don't not use social media 
like social media just has too big of a reach. It's too engaging to completely ignore. But on all these platforms, whichever ones you use, just have a link somewhere, a call to action that, hey, if you want to keep hearing from me, if, you, if I've provided value on Instagram, on Snapchat, on whatever it is, here is the most reliable, direct, personal, valuable way that I communicate with the people in my network. Subscribe here. And they will. It'll be slow at first. It'll be really slow at first. But eventually, it'll pick up. And that list is, I mean, in the online world where everything is ephemeral, everything is constantly changing, that list is the most, I mean, email turned 50 years old last year. In the fall of 2021 was 50 years of email. If something's been around for 50 years and is more popular than ever, it's probably going to be around for a long time. I I think the article that I first found you from was talking about the power of forgetting and crystallized intelligence is what you were you were getting at with that. Can you talk to us a bit about why forgetting can be a good thing? Oh yeah, forgetting is crucial. It's our most powerful capability. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, ah, oh, do you know what? I forgot what I wrote in that article. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I pretty much did, but let me just riff on it a bit. Um, you know, I came across this article a while back uh, about people who have super memory. There's these people who have perfect memory. You can ask them, what were you doing, you know, on, on April 15th, 1973? And they'll go, oh, I was doing this. Like they don't forget anything. Perfect memory. Uh, they can remember, you know, the tiniest details of things that happened years ago, decades ago. And you would think, oh, that sounds great. But it's actually awful, right? Like in the, in the newspaper article, there's a woman who's talking about, you know, I remember the day my husband had a heart attack and dropped dead like it was yesterday. And the memory never fades. It's always perfectly vivid and crystal clear in my mind. How awful is that, right? <laughs> yeah, it comes at a, a real emotional cost. Seriously, seriously. And they would often describe too that they, these people with super, with super memory, they can't distinguish between what matters and what doesn't, right? When you can remember everything perfectly, on what basis can you decide this is important and this is not? It's like nothing fades, nothing drops off the edges, and so, like, they, it's, it's very difficult for them to be present, basically. Like, why be here now when I can be in my head 10 years ago, you know, in an experience I had in the past that I remember perfectly? So that article really made me think, and I realized, you know, looking back on my own life, the times I was the happiest. Like, what were the times when I was the happiest? What was times that I had nothing on my mind. I just was carefree. It's a very David Allen thing to say. Absolutely. So, the, one of the, the meta lessons from that article is simply that a lot of the time in life we try and optimize for a thing and forget that actually maybe the reason that that thing isn't as high as it is is because it comes at a trade-off of something else. And what you said there is that you've got forgetting on one end and you've got filtration of new information on the other end. And actually, if you can't filter and distinguish new information, that's one of the signs of schizophrenia. That's one of the ways to become very um, emotionally disturbed. There's many um, trade-offs with that. Actually, by trying to just cram as much information as you can in, it can um, come at the cost of, of something else. And I, I mean, I, I certainly found this. I'm going to get a bit woo-woo here, Tiago. I don't know if you're going to roll with me on this, but um, I think that going through med school 
was, you know, very much they describe it as drinking from a fire hose. You're just trying to, you've got five or six years to cram in as much information as possible. You're getting examined at very regular intervals and it's pass or fail. So it's very much kind of, and if you fail, it's, you know, back to the start of the year, another 9,000 pounds. So it pressurizes you. And I think it had a real effect on my body. And I, I came out, you know, a, a very different person. Yes, it was valuable, but um, there's a there's a certain stress load that you you bring with you out of it and you see it in all doctors and you, and obviously your reward for finishing is you get to decompress by by doing two hard years in uh, medical and surgical rotations in a hospital so uh, <laughs> yeah i think by trying to accelerate the process it comes at a cost and in this case with your body oh yeah i was just talking recently <clears throat> to a, a geriatric doctor, a doctor who works with, you know, elderly, many of whom have dementia. And she was telling, this is the most outrageous thing ever. She was telling me that to renew your medical license in the U.S., you have to report any mental health issues, any symptoms, depression, you know, any, whatever it is, any little things. And so she was, she was telling me that she, she's been getting into my content and into life coaching and into personal growth and habits and all these things. And she was saying she shares this knowledge with her with her peers and they don't want anything to do with it. They don't even want to hear about it. They don't want to do any life coaching. They don't want to take any course. They don't even want to hear. And she asked why. And they said, because then I have to report it and I'm afraid I'm going to lose my license. Isn't that the craziest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> like our medical professionals are supposed to be keeping us healthy, are terrified of even broaching the subject of mental health in their in their own lives because they're afraid. Yeah, because you think, oh, well, is this a, a trick to get me struck off? Like, if you don't incentivize properly, then obviously it's just going to get pushed under the rug. And, that, you know, this is what happened up until quite recently when the influence of Atul Gawande and, and these kind of people to introduce, like, flight checklists for surgeries and um, a reporting culture rather than a stuff it under the rug culture in medicine um, mm -hmm. and taking lessons from the airline industry where if there's a mistake everything's documented we go well this happened because okay let's look at the root cause uh, the pilot missed out on a couple of hours of sleep for three days in a row and this happened and it's not like oh it was his fault right let's fire him because then it implies that humans are somehow infallible and that yeah. the the fault lies with the individual practitioner and not with the system. Yeah, this is, I kind of feel like this is a, this is a really profound transformation we're going through as a culture. I see it in many industries. I see it across many industries. Like I was just watching the new SpaceX documentary on Netflix where they talk about um, how uh, SpaceX is taking humans to, to space, the first private commercial company to do so. And they were recounting in the documentary the history of SpaceX. And the single th biggest thing that stuck out to me about the documentary was SpaceX's biggest breakthrough was letting rockets blow up. They're like, we're going to let stuff explode because that's how we learn. And contrasting that with the you know governmental space industry where everything has to be perfectly known and understood and planned without any risk like you may think oh that's good because you know there's human beings lives at stake but it ca it causes 
enormous cost overruns, huge delays, and in the end is not even necessarily safer in the long term because there's no innovation. You can't innovate when you can't take risks, when failure is impossible, and when mistakes are not allowed. So even in the freaking space launch industry, (laughs) the highest stakes industry that there is, we are learning, oh, we actually have to allow ourselves to make mistakes and learn from them. Right. I think part of this too is, is like you said, not automatically going to shame and blame, right? Because that's what we're afraid mm-hmm. of. Oh, if I surface a problem, I will be personally blamed and shamed. But that's just not appropriate in a business. Like most of the time, it is not that that person nefariously decided to sabotage something. That almost, that's so rare, right? Usually it wasn't some kind of honest, understandable mistake. And like you said, by, by having this culture of fear, people hide those things, which then makes them worse. Absolutely. It's the, yeah, the, no one's going to train as a pilot for 10 years and then fly for 25 years and advance their career only to deliberately screw something up. And it's interesting about the space space industry. I guess we've got Zuckerberg talking about move fast and break things and letting his engineers run multiple small tests and see what works and what doesn't with a rocket. If you if you don't blow it up, then what do you do when you haven't planned for that and something starts to go wrong? Like at least you've you've seen what can go wrong and how to adjust for it. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I suppose the the mistakes and forgetting are quite quite similar in that sense. It's just that it's happening as a microcosm inside someone's brain. You know, there's there's tests and things going wrong, and then um, we talked about creating content and allowing your ideas to then bounce off people in a controlled experiment and see what works and what doesn't and and iterate. Do you think that this is a more of a selfish question for you? Should you mourn unneeded knowledge? If you spent five or 10 years learning something that is, so in my case, I've, I've closed the door on, on medicine for, for now. Um, and part of me is thinking, oh, but that was so many years of training and cramming stuff in there. And I'm not directly needing it at the moment is that something to is that wasted time it's never wasted it's never wasted you learn things maybe not the exact you know technical medical knowledge but you learn things about how to persevere you learned how to you know who you are in the face of adversity you learn many i'm sure study skills reading skills note-taking skills memorization skills you learned what you don't like that in itself is a, is a powerful lesson. What do I not want? What do I not want to do? What do I not want to be part of, right? Like many people actually never have the courage to step away from that thing, even if they don't like it because of what you mentioned, the sunk cost. The sunk cost mm. that I cannot, it's like I cannot afford to regret and to not utilize this investment that I've made. Um. I think you need to mourn it. And I think I almost want to, I almost want to develop this, like what would a mourning ritual for knowledge look like? Right? Like I I really do think there is a sense of grief. There's a sense of grief when you, when you have say access to a certain kind of knowledge that you don't use, or even like something smaller, like let's say you take notes extensively on a book, but then you realize, no, like I just took too many notes and this actually isn't useful. Even in that moment, there's a little bit of grief Right, like, oh, but I, I really should keep this. I should really make use of it because I spent so much time. But 
a lot of what I teach people is just repeatedly returning to their values, repeatedly reminding themselves of their principles, their goals, where they're trying to head to in life. Because if you don't mourn and, and grieve for those little bits of knowledge, you're going to get to the end of your life and regret your life as a whole, right? It's like you have two choices, either regret little things and use that lesson to change direction or don't change direction, but reach the end of your life and think, I mean, this is what leads to people having regrets. Oh, I wish I had tried that career. I wish I had lived in that city. I wish I had dated that person. They, they, they were afraid and they didn't take the leap. That's a great perspective. So basically you can chase it down the rabbit hole of sunk cost at the expense of any other opportunity that you've turned away as a result. Or you can mourn it, take any meta lessons from it that you want to and keep bobbing and weaving yeah. with what life throws at you. Yeah, I think it's it's critical. Grieve, grieve the moments. Like think about what you're really grieving. You're grieving, I think, your expectations. You had expectations that something was going to go a certain way and be of a certain value and was going to be utilized in a certain way and it didn't turn out that way. All that happened is your expectations that you made up in your head did not match reality. Reality is your teacher. Reality is teaching you the ways in which your expectations were not accurate, were not appropriate. That is a wonderful gift. Yeah, and you can choose to do that or you can actually listen to what it's telling you. I love that. Yeah. So, Tiago, you have started training recently. Is that right? I've had a personal trainer for a little over a year now. How's that been going? It's awesome. I love it. I love uh, I love outsourcing my willpower. You know, the <laughs> same way that I outsource my memory to my second brain. I, it's so just powerful that I don't have to think about working out just twice a week. I have a human being waiting for me there that I have to go and see. He doesn't accept excuses. I can't cancel unless it's like truly a crisis. Um, and then for an hour each time, he puts me through a very intense, you know, series of exercises. And so the rest of the week, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to keep thinking, oh, should I work out today? I don't have to beat myself up that I'm not working out enough. It's like that whole part of my life is on autopilot. It's, it's super valuable. That is very cool. I've got to say, it was quite satisfying to see that you started on that because it felt to me like it was another dimension of you that was now kind of um, completing and yeah. that a lot of the the stuff that you do is very, very neck up. And so mm-hmm. seeing that you're now um, entering the world of uh, of mind, body and, and training is, is great as well. Oh yeah. That's been a big part of my journey. It's true. I live up here. I live in the world of abstract ideas and my imagination. And so I rely on these, these, things and these people to pull me out of my head. You know, I, when I was living in the San Francisco Bay area, I was really into sailing. Water sports are amazing. There's something about water that forces you to forget your, you know, stupid worries. Cause you're just there like immersed in this, in this substance. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I've relied on so many, you know, yoga teachers. I have a massage therapist that I go to every month who just like restructures the fascia and like she's almost like a chiropractor she just completely restructures me um i really rely on people that have body knowledge 
to complement my mind's knowledge. <laughs> There's a great book. You, you may have read it called The Body and the Mind. I haven't. It basically is a epistemological, quite heavy-going philosophy book about how all mental operations are spatial operations. And mm. it tries to make a case for um, everything that we think is purely kind of a priori rational operations is actually based in space and with spatial references. Uh, it's a very, I'm still quite early on in it, but it was recommended to me by Kate Lachlan and uh, it's been a, um, a real shift in the way that I that I look at that stuff. That's, that sounds very powerful. Sounds really powerful. I'm I'm ongoingly learning about that connection. <laughs> do you meditate? I do. It's one of my core core practices. Has been for years. Do you feel like that's um, a separate practice and discipline to this to the stuff that you're doing, or has it has it helped you to clarify your thoughts with building a second brain? Oh yeah, it's been. Oh my gosh, it's been key to everything. It's key to my my health, my peace of mind, my sleep. It's key to my entrepreneurial life. I mean, entrepreneurship is so rocky. It's so <laughs> just chaotic and unpredictable. Um, it's key to my relationships. It's key to many of my insights, right? You have to have a certain quietness of mind to have insights. If you're serially distracted by just one thing after the next, there's no... There's no blank space. There's no quiet f out of which a new idea, a new realization can emerge. Um, it's key to so many things. And to connect it most closely to building a second brain, it's almost like, this is kind of paradoxical, but the further you develop your second brain, which is this, this whole network, this ecosystem of external devices and computers and apps and online services and social media platforms, right? They're all like, orbiting my head they're like it's like my head is the sun and they're all planets all circling mm. around my first brain what that demands of my first brain it's almost like they're my employees they're my my team and so my first brain is the ceo right so what i'm trying to do is use my first brain not to do the little tiny little you know mundane task have one of my apps do that but what that means is my first brain has to elevate it has to go up a few levels and really think of think of itself as a CEO of this whole system. Being a CEO requires things like strategy, requires wisdom, requires perspective, requires presence. And meditation is how I create all those things. That's a great way to look at it. So you it's it's giving you that vantage point and giving you it is. more bandwidth to to kind of hold the space for all of the the information that you're processing exactly. that must have been helpful in uh, in writing your book as well because i i feel like that's got to be quite a burdensome task to be like right now i've got 200 pages and i have to consolidate all of this into this yeah. it was quite an endeavor it was quite an endeavor um yeah it's definitely helped with, with writing writing a lot of writing is just about listening to your intuition you know, you're making hundreds of decisions. As you write, you're deciding on a word-by-word -word basis, this word or that word. Go direction, this direction, go th that direction. Frame it this way, frame it that way. And you can't make such, so many decisions so fast at such high volume using your analytical mind. You can't. 
like this, this is kind of a broader point, decision-making. Think how critical decision-making is to our lives and to our businesses, right? One bad decision can sink you, yeah, right? And, or, or even not just a bad decision, but a decision that is not as good as it could be. A slightly suboptimal decision can lead you astray. And what does decision-making come down to is self-awareness, is self-awareness. Decision-making is fundamentally emotional. Like there's been so many even neuroscience studies that have shown this when they do brain scans and they have someone make a choice. What happens is the brain makes a choice, the brain and the body as a whole. And then seconds later, your conscious mind becomes aware of the choice, right? And says, I did so, that. Yeah. And so you think, oh, I, I am choosing this, but you didn't choose that. Something much deeper subconsciously in your brain shows it and then just told you about it. <laughs> So the it's more crazy. aware you are of that subconscious mind, and which really, it's not just here, it extends into the body. You know, when you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, when you feel goosebumps, when you feel your heart change its pace, when you feel your breathing change, those are all signals that there's data in your body that is reacting to something, that is trying to tell you something. And if you learn to listen, you make better decisions. Well, there's more serotonin receptors in the, in the gut than in the rest of the body and brain combined so yeah it's there's definitely a lot of body intelligence that i think we've ignored as a society over the last 50 years or so i i am excited to to see this new book can you tell us a bit about it yeah i have it right here ah <laughs> there it is in all its glory beautiful <laughs> yeah it's the this book is the the distillation of over a decade of my constant you know reading and learning and experimentation and teaching and coaching i've just tried to put every single one of my best ideas and advice into this book which costs you know 15 dollars in the u.s for the kindle edition i think 30 dollars for the hardcover um it's really it's it's you know it's not a great business book writing is not very profitable but I think of it as just my message to the world. It's my gift to the world, trying to put th these ideas in the hands of every single person in every country that I possibly can, because I really think it's, it's life-changing. There it is. If you want the, the distillation of Tiago's brain into your brain for $15, <laughs> then uh, that is the book to get. I think books are like a cheat code for you I know. know the, it's so underrated in in the um in the world of flashy flashy 60 second vertical videos and all that how can we pick up a copy yeah just go to buildingasecondbrain.com and you'll see all the different things we offer uh including links to the many bookstores and websites and retailers where you can pick up you know the various editions various formats of the book if you're a coach and you are on the edge of getting this just 100%. I've not even read it, but I know that I can vouch for, for Tiago. The, the way that he distills concepts and makes them so clear and accessible, he's done all of the processing under the hood so that you can build a second brain and become the best coach that you can be and manage the information flow, think more clearly, operate more effectively. So 100% worth getting. Awesome. Thank you, Yusuf. I, I really appreciate it. And thanks for the, the conversation. How can we find out more about you as well if people want to get hold of more Tiago? Yeah. Uh, beyond building a second brain, my main website is Forte Labs, F-O-R-T-E-L-A-B-S dot C-O. 
Uh, and there you can find the blog, you can find the podcast, you can find all the many things I do. Um, that's really the central home base. Amazing. Jago, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Yusuf. Want to learn more about the systems we use to run, build, and scale propanefitness.com? Head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build Propane Fitness. We walk through the sales systems, the delivery systems, follow-up, remarketing, how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24-7. We really do cover the full thing, right? And if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us, there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels, the best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode.